Hello, everyone. Uh, it's a great pleasure to have Dr. Subarao here, the 22nd governor of RBI. We are very happy to have you here at ISP, sir. Welcome once again. Thank you. Wonderful to be here in ISP. Thank you. Sir, thank you for giving us this opportunity. We'll try to go over your life in general, your uh, uh, distinguished career as the bureaucrat and then as the governor of RBI. I would like to ask you about your family. How did it start? Because uh, you started in Telangana, Andhra Pradesh, back at that time. So we want to know about you, your family. How were you as a kid? Well, I come from a low middle class family. My father was uh, in the state government as an assistant public prosecutor. And uh, we used to, he was posted in West Godavari in Eluru, and that's where I spent my early childhood. We were seven children, so uh, we weren't poor, but uh, we were, uh, my, I knew, I could, now when I look back, I can see that my father was struggling for money. My father was educated, he was a lawyer. My mother, I, you know, she went through schooling, but I don't think she finished school. But both my father and mother attached a lot of importance to their children getting educated and that they were very aspirational for all of us. So looking back, I think uh, they gave us what we needed most, a start in life. I'm thankful to them. In fact, I went to a municipal elementary school. Then, of course, I'd gone to Sainik School, Korukonda. Sainik School had just started. My father saw that as an opportunity to provide me high-quality education, even though uh, he did not have the money because they offered scholarships for depending on the parents' income. We also know that then you moved to the IIT, you studied physics, but there were a few changes. Then you went to economics. And we also want to know, like, how did you start thinking about becoming a civil servant? And when did this switch happen? Well, uh, my father, as I said, was very aspirational for all of us and he used to inspire us that uh, we should, you know, he had attached a lot of uh, importance to government jobs because he was in the government. So he thought government jobs are the best things to do. There was no private, not much of a private sector at that time. So he used to tell us you must, you know, try for the IAS or you might become a high court judge. So he attached a lot of importance to that. And so trying to become an IAS officer was something that I grew up with. But I always knew, and he always knew, that for a small-town boy with all the lack of opportunities they were, it's difficult to make the IAS. For, as, as a matter of fact, before I actually qualified for the IAS and reported at the Missouri Academy for Training, I'd never met another IAS officer, so I don't know what IAS officers look like. There was always something that, can I become an IAS officer? Is it possible for me? As much as I was aspirational, as much as I was uh, ambitious, there was also an element of doubt uh, about whether you could make it. Then about choosing physics, you know, when you, you make that decision when you're 16 or 17, right? And how much of the world do you know? Physics looks like a challenging subject, and it, it would make me eligible for writing the IAS. If I did not write the IAS, there would always be other careers to choose from. Not that I always wanted to be a physicist. I mean, being a physicist was one of the goals, but I don't think when I was 17, 18, I really aspired to be a research physicist. So we know a lot uh, about your central banking experience because there were a lot of speeches that you gave as a governor 
also your memoir that you wrote after retiring from the RBI. But your civil services uh, background, that's more of a black box for everyone. So I would want to understand how was your life as a civil servant and maybe if you can recall one incident which you remember from those times. The civil service is a career span of 35 years. And one of the attractions of the IAS, which no other uh, service or career offers you, is the enormous amount of variety within the same service. For example, if you become a private sector, you join the automobile sector as an executive, you are in the automobile sector, you know a lot about automobiles, but you don't know much about what's happening outside. Whereas the IAS offers you the opportunity to work you know, in different jobs. That's what I enjoyed most. And you, were, you know, as for the first 10 years, I worked in the districts as a sub-collector, then as collector. Then I came to this secretariat. I worked in industrial promotion. And then I went to Delhi. I was in the Ministry of Finance. I came back here to Andhra Pradesh. I was finance secretary here. Then I went to the World Bank, which is also an unusual thing for a world, for an IAS officer to do. I was there for five and a half years, first in Africa and then in Washington, D.C. So I would ask more specifically, at least for the rest of India, the 1991 reforms was a monumental change. And I think that change would have been felt even as a civil servant. What was the big change that you saw in how you managed uh, as a civil servant before and after 1991? Shrika, you're right that 1991 was a monumental change. Certainly, it changed the direction of the economy. It was historic not only for India, it was historic in the world that a large democracy like India was uh, opting for market orientation. It was a big deal. But I don't think it changed the character of IAS jobs. Yes, there was less dispensation for bureaucrats to give, less licenses, permits, etc., but that was a minuscule of IAS officers who were doing that. Large majority of IAS jobs or the content of the job or the process of the job or the sensitivity required to perform the job did not change because of economic reforms. But I, as much as 1991 was a watershed in the economy, it wasn't such a sharp watershed in the IAS job content. But IAS has evolved over time and uh, IAS officers need to be much more responsive. So the job content of IAS and the approach to jobs of the IAS had changed. But one thing that's not changed is the values and character that must define an IAS officer. So let's switch gears. Let's go to your tenure at RBI. And since you're talking about uh, IAS in general, what was the biggest difference uh, you found between colleagues in the ministry and then at the RBI? But there's a big difference. Government is an ocean. Everything is there. Of course, you are one very, very, very small part of the government. But the government is an ocean. What happens everywhere is affecting you. And you're working with politicians, ministers. You're working with colleagues in your own ministry. You're working with colleagues across the government. You're working with state governments. And you have to be very quick. Whereas RBI, is more depth, less breadth. Very defined mandate. Your responsibilities are very clearly defined. But what you do matters a lot to the economy. The governor, the buck stops there. And that's the big difference between the job of the finance secretary and the job of the governor. 
We know you have mentioned it many times that it was trial by fire baptism when you joined RBI, uh, the Lehman Brothers crashed after 11 days. So we know how you manage the economy. What I'm trying to understand is from a slightly different perspective, the association of RBI with other central banks in the world, the collaboration during the crisis period. That's a very good question because uh, as we discussed informally outside, when the global financial crisis erupted, central banks were in the forefront, battling the crisis. You know, in most economies, most countries, most people did not know the central bank, much less did they know who the governor was. Suddenly, central bankers were in the forefront fighting the crisis. The crisis was also attributed in some sense to the inaction or omission on the part of central banks, like uh, they failed to take care of financial stability and therefore the crisis erupted. So central bankers were held responsible for the crisis and central bankers were in the forefront managing the crisis. And this was a global crisis, although it erupted in one segment of the financial sector, one country, it spread around the world. What was important was not only that central banks take action, but they do it together in synergy. Because global markets are integrated, therefore central bank actions are to be seen to be acting together to fight the crisis. There was a lot of coordination among central banks, both formally and informally. But one thing I must say, you know, sort of extending myself, but since you asked this question, the advanced economy central banks were held responsible for, the omission was more on their part. They felt responsible for it. And as part of accepting that responsibility, they took it upon themselves to alert us to their decisions, both formally uh, in meetings, but also informally. There a lot of coordination among central banks during that time. I'll move on to the stint uh, that you had at the RBI as the governor. You have spoken candidly about communication, the importance of communication. And I think that is a general trend around the world that central banks are becoming uh, more uh, transparent in how they conduct their policy. My question is more towards the fundamental changes that you did at the RBI in terms of communication, not only for the market participants, but you also had a focus on making communication in such a way that even common people can understand what RBI can do. So there you stand a little bit different on the overall communication debate. What did you see at RBI that made you make this a big change in explaining to the common people what RBI was doing? Yeah, that's a good question, and thank you for asking that. I took it upon myself to demystify the Reserve Bank because what the RBI does and what the governor does by way of moving interest rates, exchange rate management, regulation of banks, financial inclusion, financial literacy, have an enormous impact on the life of common people. But most people do not know that their economic outlook has changed for the better or for the worse because of a decision taken by the Reserve Bank. So I thought it is very important for people to understand the RBI as an institution. And by that, I was also hoping to build up an accountability mechanism that people understand and hold the RBI accountable for what its uh, 
mandate is to deliver. Uh, I'll move on to another question. So we know uh, we change opinion once uh, new facts come in and you specifically mention it in your book. I want to know about your opinion on inflation targeting regime. We have seen some flip-flops on your end. So we want to know <laughs> what made you change your opinion and where do you stand on it today? Yeah, you don't have to be sheepish. Uh, yes, there were flip-flops, but not only on that, but on several other things. But at court, you just mentioned, you know, when facts change, I change my mind, what do you do, okay. sir? It's uh, attributed to Keynes, right? And uh, I think that's a reflection of remarkable intellectual integrity that you're not scared or uh, uh, you're not too proud to admit your own mistakes. And I invoke that quote to explain my own changing stance on inflation targeting. Because several times during my tenure, I was asked if RBI was going to adopt inflation targeting. And I had reservations on that for a number of reasons. I cannot go through all of them in this interview, but just one or two of those reservations. Uh, in India, inflation is more often a result of supply-side pressures rather than demand-side pressures. On the other hand, monetary policy, which is the main instrument available to the Reserve Bank to control inflation, controls inflation from the demand side. So if your inflation is coming from supply side pressures and if your instrument is to manage demand side, there's an incompatibility there and RBI may not be able to deliver on the inflation target. Similarly, government's fiscal deficit. If that is very high, that has an impact on inflation. And RBI may not be able to do anything about it. It's called, in technical terms, fiscal dominance of monetary policy. So my reservations were about whether RBI, if it is given an inflation targeting framework, can deliver on that. And if it fails to deliver, there'll be a credibility risk. And it might be actually be worse because inflation will actually go up because people will believe that RBI is unable to deliver on inflation. So the cure might be worse than uh, the disease. But of course, facts changed. Uh, government embraced the path of fiscal responsibility. Supply-side pressures had declined in their impact. So a lot of factors changed, which would make it possible for RBI to deliver on the inflation targeting. So now we have six years to look on the inflation targeting regime, and we have had two governors, uh, Governor Patel and Governor Das. What do you think has been the performance of this regime? <laughs> we have already seen, uh, we have breached the target a few times. Quite independent of the governors, okay, but... Uh, Yes, the inflation targeting framework started in 2016. If you ask me this question, you know, one and a half years ago, for example, my answer would have been different. Because we started inflation target, we embraced inflation targeting in 2016. Up until 2020, it was not tested. Because global oil prices were low, global commodity prices were low, global economy was uh, stable. There were no global pressures which would impact Indian inflation. Credit demand was low here. There was no domestic factors that would impact inflation. So inflation, because independent of RBS actions, was actually quite low. There were no inflation pressures. So the inflation targeting framework was not tested. RBI could quite easily deliver on 4% inflation target. I'm not underestimating the importance of the uh, competence of the RBI in having delivered, but it was not tested. 
only after the pandemic crisis had erupted, like you said, inflation had gone up, breached the 6% upper ceiling, growth has come down, is the inflation targeting framework being tested? And in the event, RBI has managed it quite well so far. There are, there are no durable demand pressures. But of course, there are always concerns that regardless of demand or supply pressures, if inflation persists for long enough, inflation expectations get firmed up and that itself can raise inflation. That's a risk RBI is very sensitive to. But the, to summarize my long answer, I think the inflation targeting framework has been tested over the last one and a half years, and RBA has passed the test quite well, I should say. I will go on to another topic of debate, which is uh, the central bank independence. And of course, the media really loves to write about it whenever the tussle is going between the finance ministry and the RBI. Uh, but we have seen across the board, all governors, there is always some issue which crops up, which brings the two uh, at loggerheads. In your case, it was very early on in your career that you had a tussle with the finance ministry when uh, the then finance minister, P. Chidambaram, he instituted a committee to manage the liquidity in the country. So you switched gear. You completely changed uh, from your role as a, as a bureaucrat in the finance ministry to the governor. So uh, what I would like to understand is, uh, is there some way to educate people in the finance ministry to understand uh, the problems that the central banks face or to make them more aware of the trade-offs? Which I think you immediately realized once you switched to RBI. But I'm sure when you were at the finance ministry, you would have done exactly the opposite. Absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Okay. I was just going to say that as part of my response. But before I say that, let me preface this. I don't want to deny that there are tensions between the government and the RBI. There are tensions between the governor and the finance minister. And the chemistry varies depending on the personalities. There are differences of opinion sometimes that can be quite disagreeable. But it is much less than what the market makes it out to be. You, you know you mentioned the media, not the media. The media tries to sensationalize things. So there is tension, but it is not almost, al always almost at the brinkmanship level that the media makes it out to be. But coming to the larger question that you asked, which is very important, which is that there is much less sensitivity in the Ministry of Finance and in the government to the importance of the independence or autonomy of a central bank than they should be. And people realize that only after if some very few people like me who made the transition from the government to the central bank understand the importance and understand the need to sensitize civil servants and indeed politicians in the ministry to the importance of uh, maintaining and preserving the independence of the central bank. And I think, as you say, there must be some sensitization or training programs. with lots of training programs, right? Let's move on to the next question, which is about the stressed assets in the banking sector right now, which went on a backseat because of COVID uh, to a certain extent, I would say. I think it would rear its heads again. But if we think of the genesis of the whole problem, 
it probably lies early on in your tenure sure. due to easy liquidity policies. And we have seen four governors since then, almost more than a decade past. We are still debating the same issue. So uh, what I want to understand is the history, at least under your tenure, when did you realize this is a problem? And what can be done about it now? Because we are still struggling with it. That requires a very long answer, but let me try and summarize my response in about two minutes. You are right that it started in my time. I accept responsibility for that. But most, one of the things actually you can tell your students about this, which is that very difficult to detect problems anyway, especially in the financial sector in real time. Because the financial sector can bear pressure for much longer than you think. In fact, somebody got a Nobel Prize for that insight. So it's difficult in your own time, real time, to detect that there is some bubble building up. And by the time the implosion takes place, it's too late. As you mentioned liquidity, yes. Uh, you know, the low interest rate regime and liquidity during my tenure, but there were a number of other factors, including, for example, the crony capitalism of that time, you know that uh, people attribute NPS to crony capitalism, the government pressurizing public sector banks to lend to corporates of their favor for pecuniary or political paybacks. There was irrational exuberance. And that was the you know, high growth, India growth story was unfolding. So uh, investors were very exuberant and they made calculations assuming that the good times will roll on forever. There were Supreme Court orders cancelling coal block allocation, cancelling 2G allocation. There was uh, a number of other factors that came together to brew this NPA crisis. So to attribute it to one factor would be to misread the situation for future guidance. I would say that uh, in the event uh, over the last several years, we can't grips with the problem. And uh, I think it's, uh, I wouldn't say we've come out of it, but uh, as much as COVID had affected it, I think when we come out of it, the NPA problem will be less stringent than we fear. I see. But in an interview last year, August, you mentioned that the mechanical recovery of the economy, along with the low base effect, does not say much about growth. Your opinion about short-term and medium-term outlook for the Indian economy was not that great. Has your opinion changed since the last year? Not at all. You know, uh, some more new facts have come to light, of course, that last year the economy contracted by 7.2%, the biggest contraction probably since independence. And this year, expectations are that growth will be 9.5 or even in double digits. There's a lot of positivity, quite rightly, that... Uh, you know, we feared terrible things, but uh, the outcomes have been less frightening than we feared, and the recovery has been quite quick. But we should read it for what it, what it is, which is that we're growing at 10% on a decline of 7.2%, on a low base. It's a V-shaped recovery in terms of growth rates. But if we actually take the level of outputs, by the end of March 22, which is this fiscal year, the actual level of output might be about the same as at the end of March 22 years ago. That's not saying much because 
Remember, throw your mind back to March 20. The economy had been slowing for the last four or five years, even by then. Our growth was 8% five years ago, 7% four years ago, 6% three years ago, 4% two years ago, and minus 7.2% last year. So even if we go back to the March 20 level of output, it still be quite low. So as much as we should be quite, uh, what should I say, assured about the quick V-shaped recovery, we should realize that uh, output is still low and there may have been some permanent loss of output. That's the short-term outlook, but you also refer to the medium-term outlook. There's concerns about potential growth rate. It is actually coming down even before the crisis, the pandemic, and now there's fear that it might have come down even further. So if potential growth rate had come down to 5 or 5.5%, how do we tackle the big problems of the economy? Unemployment, inequality, education, health. So my big concerns remain, and I think that's the big task ahead. So on inflation targeting, you rated RBI, I'm paraphrasing, 8 out of 10. So on the COVID management, how would you rate RBI and the central <laughs> government? Or what, what, would be, uh, what would you do if you were at the helm of affairs? I would probably do the same things that the current dispensation of the RBI has done. Because you must realize that as much as you're the governor, as much as you take the final call, the governor takes a decision based on the institutional knowledge of the RBI, which is much, much higher than an individual governor can bring to the institution. So all governors fall back on that wealth of experience and knowledge of the RBI. And so I would probably have done the same thing, maybe you know, at the margin in terms of timing or in terms of uh, quantum, it might be different. If you press me, I would say probably that I would have intervened in the foreign exchange market less than the current dispensation is done. Okay. That's probably because you have had experience on that before. Uh, partly out of that experience, certainly. Partly also because I believe that the RBI should not be intervening in the foreign exchange market every time the exchange rate moves. There's a moral hazard there. Because if exchange rate moves and RBI intervenes, believing that there is volatility, market participants, investors, corporates, entrepreneurs would outsource their exchange rate risk management to the RBI and uh, take risk, which is not good for them, which is not good for the economy. So I think RBI should uh, be less interventionist in the foreign exchange market. Governor Subara, those are very exciting comments about the RBI and the economy in general. Since we are at ISP, we are always fascinating, fascinated by the journey that you have had. How did you keep yourself motivated? And what would be your message to the next generation of business leaders in ISP and I would say in general in India? You know, you are presuming that I always kept myself motivated. I just want you to know and your viewers to know that I had my share of ups and downs. I had my share of motivation, demotivation, like any other career. But I tried my best to make a difference in whatever job I was. And that, I think, helped me along. And tried to see that when you leave a job, 
you leave it in a better position than you when you took it on. And then for ISP business leaders, it'll be presumptuous on my part to say something at the end of an interview on a topic that uh, has been engaging the biggest minds around the world for generations about what is leadership, what should leaders be doing. But one thing, if you, since you asked me, it'll be irresponsible on my part not to respond. I would say business leaders must dare to fail, you know, because of course we all want to succeed and we must do everything possible to attain success. But we should not be so stuck on success that we become risk averse and not try new things because you might fail. So not taking on new things or not trying to be innovative because you might fail will end you up as the biggest failure. So not just business leaders, but leaders everywhere should dare to fail. On that positive note, may we fail, but we should still try. Absolutely. Uh, we'll end this interview. Thank you, Governor Subara, so much for your time. It was a pleasure meeting you. Thank you, Thank Shekhar. You. Thank you very much. <laughs>